0: First of all, a very warm welcome, everyone, uh, to this event which has been hosted by the LSE Department of International History. Uh, we thought there should be some history, uh, as the theme this year is Revolutions of the LSE Literary Festival. Do make sure you get a copy of the programme if you haven't already got one or consulted it online. And you'll see in front of you the batting order um, for the speakers today. My name is David Stevenson, and I will be chairing the event. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to introduce our three colleagues... Um, The department is always invited to contribute, and um, what we thought we would do is actually not talk primarily about religion, (laughs) Sorry to disappoint you, <coughs> but if you have questions about Russia, then we probably have expertise. I can see one of our Russian experts, two of our ex-Russian experts at least in the audience here, um, Janet Hartley and uh, Paul Keenan. Sorry to put you on the spot, folks. Yeah, but so we have got Russian expertise here. But what we thought we would do is try to put the events of 1917 in Russia in a broader context. Um, so we've got three members of the department who hopefully will be very well equipped to be able to do that. Um, they're going to take it in turn to talk each for about 20 minutes, and then there should be plenty of time for questions and answer at the end. Um, can I remind you of the hashtag for the event, which is there? Can I also remind you, if you haven't already done it, to move your mobile phones onto silent, so that if you are tweeting during the event, we, you won't be disturbing everyone else. Um, the event will also be podcast i say t- 20 minutes in turn, we're going to start off with David Motadel, um whose expertise is particularly on the Second World War, but on the global impact of the Second World War, and he's, fact also, he's, he's published on, uh, on Nazi Germany and the, Muslim, and the Islamic world, um, but he's also able to give us a kind of long-term sweep on the history of revolutions going back into the 18th and 19th centuries and through into the 20th, so that would be the global context. Secondly, Natalia Kabita, who is from the Ukraine and is an expert on Ukrainian history, and has published on the Ukraine under Soviet rule and is now working on the political institutions of Ukraine, will be talking about the implications of 1917 for the Ukraine and the contrasts between the Russian and Ukrainian experience. And thirdly, Dr. Tanya Harmer, whose expertise is on the... Latin America, specifically the IND period in Chile and is now working on Latin American revolutionaries, will be taking Latin America as a case study for the global impact of 1917 through into Latin America and beyond. So that's the Bill of Fair, and um, I hope very much that you enjoy the speakers, and we're looking forward to a very <coughs> stimulating afternoon and hopefully for a good discussion afterwards. So, um, first of all, David Murtadale. Thank you very much.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be here today. Um, thank you all for coming um, I would give a very general paper, uh, but let me start with the Russian Revolution. Let me to figure out the PowerPoint. So this is the title I'll Start with the Russian Revolution. The Russian Revolution of 1917 had profound global repercussions. Inspired by the events in St. Petersburg and stirred by the turmoil of the First World War, revolutionaries across the world rose to overthrow the existing order. At one time or another, between 1917 and 1923, the red flag flew from Glasgow to Ulaanbaatar, from Milan to southern Siberia. The Russian Revolution sparked the proclamation of the Munich Soviet Republic, or uh, Bavarian um, Socialist Republic, the Hungarian Revolution, and the foundation of the Hungarian Soviet Republic in 1919, the Limerick Soviet in Ireland in 1919, and the Polish Soviet Socialist Republic. Even in Britain, uh, the revolutionary wave was felt. Here in London, uh, Beatrice Webb, uh, one of the co-founders of the LSE, wrote in her diary on uh, 11th November 1918, um, I quote, Peace, thrones are everywhere crashing, and men of property everywhere secretly trembling. How soon will the tide of revolution catch up with the tide of victory? That is the question which is exercising Whitehall and Buckingham Palace and causing anxiety even among the more thoughtful of Democrats, end quote. But also beyond Europe, the Russian revolutionaries inspired socialist movements. For example, the Iranian revolutionaries you can see here under the charismatic guerrilla leader Mirza Kuchekan, who's a person in the middle, um, who in 1920 proclaimed the short-lived Persian Socialist Soviet Republic in Gilan, in northern Iran, on the Caspian Sea. Soon, across the colonial world, from West Africa to Southeast Asia, anti imperial revolutionaries rose and fought for a socialist post colonial order. The new Soviet rulers in Moscow offered these movements encouragement and guidance, and they sought to coordinate this wave of revolutions. Through the Soviet led Comintern, the Communist International. And yet, in the end, um, attempts to establish socialist states outside of Russia were shattered by anti Bolshevik and right wing counter movements almost everywhere. Despite the broader history of 1917, we still tend to see the Russian Revolution in a national framework as a Russian revolution. Indeed, most major revolutions of the modern age are usually considered as distinct, isolated national events. The French Revolution is and remains French in popular memory, just like the Egyptian Revolution of 1919 is remembered as an Egyptian revolt by Egyptian, and the Iranian Revolution of um, 1978 79 as Iranian in Iran. In the age of the nation state, we've come to see and often glorify revolutions as national events. Most of the time, however, they were strikingly international and part of broader revolutionary waves engulfing entire empires, regions, and at times the globe. Historians, however, have recently shown more and more interest in um, the, the spread of revolutions beyond state borders in the, in the broader history of, of, of revolutions going beyond the national framework. And in my paper today, um, I would like to look at some aspects of the history of revolutionary waves. So this is our program. Um, in the first part, I will provide a very brief overview of the major revolutionary moments in modern history. Um, in the second part, I will then offer you a number of explanations for the um, simultaneity of, the, of, of, of major revolutions and how... Um, we can look at them um, through comparisons and <laughs> connections. So um, let me start with a brief look at the major revolutionary moments to illustrate the phenomenon. The earliest and indeed most studied revolutionary wave in modern history were the, American Revolution, uh, were the, sorry, the Atlantic revolutions, which began, as you can see here, with the American Revolution of 1776 and in 1789 swept over to France. Inspired by the idea of liberty, revolutionaries fought um, against the old aristocratic elites and, at times, against colonial rulers. Um, These revolutions then sparked the Haitian Revolution of 1798, uh, 91, sorry, the Irish Rebellion of of 1798, um, and the revolutionary wars in Latin America. I have a picture of you from the Haitian Revolution. Around the same time, more of a similar revolts broke out in the Netherlands in um, 1787, in Belgium 1789, and in the Ottoman Empire with the revolts of 1907 and 190 uh, sorry 1807 and 1808. More generally, this first revolutionary wave may be considered as part of a global crisis, um, observing events from the Europe's from Europe's heartlands. Hegel. Um, at the time noted that the French Revolution's significance was, I quote, world historical. More closely linked were the upheavals of 1848. Across Europe, revolutionaries spearheaded by the the bourgeoisie and, and intellectuals who were radicalized by the ideas of liberalism and nationalism confronted absolutist regimes. Revolts began in January in the streets of Palermo, and soon sparked unrest um, on the Italian peninsula. The February uh, February Revolution in France toppled King Louis-Philippe and um, led to an escalation of events. You can see the February Revolution in Paris. Civil war spread across the German states, the Habsburg Empire, the Netherlands, Denmark, um, Ireland, and so on. It was um, probably the first truly European um, revolutionary event um, in many places, uh, martial law was was declared and most upheavals were put down with thousands killed. In the end, though, the revolutionary turmoil even reached um, Europe's overseas empires, and there's some fascinating research, um, more recent research on the impact of um, 1848 in Latin America, in the colonial world, um, up to, to India. And for many who, who took part in, in the uprising, um, the international scope of, of their revolt was crucial. Um, in early 1848, Marx and Engels published the Communist Manifesto calling on workers of the world to unite, and for decades to come, um, socialists <coughs> would promote the idea of world revolution, a concept that is based on the notion of revolutionary waves. Right? In Asia, the events of 1848 were echoed in the constitutional revolutions of the early 20th century. Um, Japan's defeat um, of Russia, which you can see here, depicted here, and the ensuing Russian Revolution of 1905 sparked the Persian Constitutional Revolution in 1905, the Young Turk Revolution of 1908 in the Ottoman Empire, and finally the Chinese Revolution of 1911. I have a picture of the Young Turk Revolution um, (coughs) of um, 1908. Um, in the Russia-Japanese War, uh, a non-European country with a constitution had prevailed over a European country without a constitution. And so constitutions, in a way, seemed to be the, the key of, of, of power and thereby fueled these, these, anti, uh, these constitutional, um, constitutionalist movements and Meiji Japan um, became a shining model of modernization in the eyes of many activists and reformers in Asia, eager to confront traditional society and the autocratic political order in their countries. And uh, I should perhaps also mention that soon the constitutional revolutionary wave went beyond the Middle East and Asia, reaching Europe in 19010 with the uh, Portuguese Revolution and the constitutional revolution of Monaco, um, and even the Americas with. Um, The Mexican Revolution um, of um, um, 1910-20, which Tanya will um, talk about later. I will skip the Russian Revolution here um, because I've already mentioned it, Um, but uh, almost equally intense (laughs) was the wave of anti-colonial upheavals after the First World War. Um, fueled by President Wilson's promises for national self-determination in 1919, anti-colonial demonstrations ensued across the colonial and semi-colonial world in Egypt, Tunisia, India, China, French, Indochina, and beyond. And here you can see a picture from China, the May 4th movement. In Cairo, actually, Egyptian women uh, for the first time in history went onto the streets to join in public protest. As you can see here, in the end, the Wilsonian moment, um, as Harvard historian Eris Manela once called it, um, receded. The European powers were unwilling to grant freedom and hopes for independence were um, remained unfulfilled. Soon, however, anti-colonial revolutionaries would rise again. During the Cold War, several chains of revolutions shook um, Africa, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Latin America, and socialist revolutionaries overthrew dict- dictatorial rulers um, from the Batista dictatorship in the Cuban Revolution, which you can see here, to, the, um, to Ethiopia's emperor, Heli Selassie, in the Ethiopian Revolt of 1974. <coughs> Marxist slogans of world revolution fired, of course, American paranoia about the spread of communism through a, a domino effect, another notion of a, Constitution, of, of a um, revolutionary wave. And ironically, um, the Cold War ended in a wave of demonstrations that overthrew most of the world's communist regimes. Um, in Europe, protests began in Poland, spread to Hungary, East, and, and Eastern Germany, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, and finally in, 1989, and in December 1989, reached um, Ceausescu's Romania. Earlier that year in China, the Tiananmen. Um, Square protests were crushed in a bloodbath while communist rule was abandoned across most of Asia and Africa around that time. For contemporary observers, these events marked no less than the definite victory of liberal democracy, the end of history, as Francis Fukuyama rejoiced prematurely. Since then, new waves um, emerged, Uh, most importantly the color revolutions in the Ukraine and in Georgia, And uh, more recently, um, the upheavals in the Middle East, the revolts of the Arab Spring, you can see a picture of the Tahrir Square in in Cairo, have um, come in faster waves than ever experienced before in history. Beginning in Tunisia, unrest spread within weeks um, across Egypt, Libya, Algeria, Syria, Bahrain, Oman, and Yemen. And although they led to the fall of dictators, such as uh, Ben Ali of Tunisia, uh, Mubarak of Egypt, um, or Gaddafi of Libya, they often ended with the restoration of old regimes or with bloody civil wars. So let me use the last few minutes um, to talk um, uh, a bit about um, the ways historians can look and explain these revolutionary waves. First, to understand these waves, historians have to compare, Uh, have to compare revolutions that emerged around the same time, um, examining, critically examining um, parallels and differences. To be sure, (coughs) the revolutions that occurred simultaneously were often as much defined by their differences as by their similarities. In fact, the the very historical concept of revolution could mean very different things in different settings, from um, Enrolop in the Persianate world to revolution in Latin America, and it could change over time. Um, The German historian um, historian Rainer Koselleck once raised the problem in an important article entitled Historical Criteria of the Modern Concept of Revolution, Historische Kriterien zum Neuzeitlichen Revolutionsbegriff, in which he basically dissected the different meanings and connotations revolution, the term revolution, had at different times in history and in different local, uh, regional contexts. Moreover, apart from comparing, and I think more importantly, um, we as, as historians have to look at connections. Um, causal, and other, um, between simultaneous revolutions. Some of these connections might have been consciously seen by (coughs) contemporaries. Others might have been not um, visible to contemporaries, but can be reconstructed today by us um, as historians. In fact, there are two forms of connections. Um, Revolutions could be connected, um, first of all, by similar external meta forces um, such as major wars the collapse of empire and rapid um, structural social change which could lead to similar revolutionary um, situations and conjunctural power struggles in different states right so if this meta developments that affect different societies in a, in a, in a similar way, thereby creating revolutionary, a revolutionary situation, even though there's no direct connection. It's basically like an indirect connection. So, um, for example, the First World War was crucial when explaining the simultaneous socialist revolts between 1917 and 1921. Or the Arab Spring uh, was not only characterized by a simultaneous global diffusion of a rights-based discourse, but also by structural meta-problems caused by um, for example, uneven population growth and, and the emergence of, of a youth um, majority um, that affected all the states that were affected by um, the Egyptian by, sorry by the Arab Spring, um, so these are the general meta forces furthermore, and this is the second connection we can look at um, there are direct direct connections and entanglements between these different revolutions. So uh, political upheavals could encourage populations in similar situations in other countries to make similar demands or to articulate their requests in similar ways. Um, here we have to consider a wide range of links uh, between revolutionary movements um, first the spread of revolutionary ideas and slogans, and um, also important the, the language in which um, they they were conveyed. Um, and second, um, the movement of revolutionaries themselves. Um, After all, these modern revolutions took place in a world of (coughs) uh, regional and global connections, and uh, that resulted from colonialism, um, trade and commerce, and of course from modern means of communication and transport. Indeed, major revolutionary figures of the 20th century roamed the globe. Uh, Among them was um, of course uh, him, um, Thomas Jefferson, uh, the founding father, who Uh, was U.S. ambassador in Paris and supported and influenced French revolutionaries during or just before the the French Revolution. Or M.N. Roy, the Indian revolutionary uh, and co-founder of the Indian Communist Party in India um, who tried to carry um, revolution to the Dutch East Indies, China, and Mexico where he co-founded the Mexican Communist Party and I'm sure this is a topic which comes up again in Tanya's talk. Um, And finally, of course, Che Guevara um, the Argentinian revolutionary who not only fought in the Cuban revolution uh, but also tried to export it to Congo and Bolivia and the rest of Latin America and these are of course um, only the most famous figures um, there are many lesser known itinerant revolutionaries and historians have started more and more to look into this microhistory of of, of um, these individuals who basically turned um, the history of Revolutions into in, 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 an international, a truly global event. Even more important, though, than the mobility of these people, of, of, of these revolutionaries, um, was the spread of ideas. Indeed, many revolutionaries of the modern age had universal claims, promoting ideas such as republicanism, constitutionalism, communism, nationalism, or liberalism, um <coughs> they most sought to replace their old rulers with popular forms of government. And yet, Um, we need to examine not only the ways in which revolutionary ideas and slogans spread, uh, but also how they adapted their meanings in different local contexts, uh, taking into account local differences in political conditions and social environments. The forms of uh, communication changed, of course. In the Atlantic revolutions, um, which uh, stretched over more than two decades, revolutionaries and their ideas could only travel or cross the oceans uh, by sailing vessel. As modern communication developed, um, the, play, the, the pace, the speed of revolutionary waves increased. In 1905, for example, um, when the, um, when the constitutional revolutions shook Asia, revolutionary slogans were circulated by telegraph or <coughs> means of transport. In fact, in the 1905 constitutional revolutions in Asia were the first revolutions that were reported more or less live um, via the International Telegraph Service. I'll come to um, the end now. Um, so in the course of the 20th century, I should just like sum up, um, technological innovation became more and more um, important um, in the expansion of political mass mobilization. Um, most importantly, perhaps, during the Arab Spring, um, drawing on satellite television, mobile phones, and the Internet, um, the revolutions of the Arab Spring spread within weeks. So compare that to the Atlantic revolutions over um, two decades. Right? So <coughs> acceleration is a major feature of the modern history of revolution. Um, so to conclude... Um, Revolutions that have usually um, been studied within national frameworks were often um, significantly influenced by um, developments in the wider world and often had themselves a profound impact across state borders. In modern history, national revolutions were in fact the exception. Perhaps Marx um, and the revolutionaries of 1917 were right, um, and world revolution was and is possible. Thank you.
2: from a broad context I'll go to a very specific case and that would be the case of Ukraine what is particularly interesting about Ukraine before I go into full details of 1917 is that by 1917 Ukraine has been part of the Russian empire for more than 200 years what is interesting is that the Russian revolution the February, I'm talking about the February revolution first and foremost had different impacts on Russia and on Ukraine. Well ultimately the goal of the Ukrainian revolution was to obtain an independent state or autonomy but then independent state. The revolution is <coughs> failed and this is probably why it's a bit more obscure, um, remained more obscure in historiography of the Russian revolution. So <clears throat> I will tell you how I came to this topic very briefly. Um, I started my interest in... Uh, I, I came to 1917 by accident. My main interested, interest was why Ukraine in the last 25 years had two revolutions. So I started thinking, what, well, started looking for, for, for an explanation. I came back, well, to 1991. What I found there was not quite satisfactory, so I went back and back and I came to 1917 then I started searching even further back, but then I was told by my esteemed colleagues just to stop because it's endless. <laughs> so, uh, so here it is. What happened? So after 25 years, effectively, of independence, of Ukrainian independence since 1991, Ukraine has demonstrated one important characteristic that is different to Russia. And Ukraine is resistant to authoritarianism. And scholars, political scientists, they've pinpointed five most important characteristics. That is weak presidential power, dual executive, fragmented political elites and and involvement of oligarchs in politics, competing influence of of the West and Russia, and a relationship, and this I, I would underline is the most important characteristic is a relationship between the executive and legislative branches in Ukraine that is driven by consensus-seeking politics. And so, yes, so I started looking at explanation, where are the origins of all these characteristics. And I came to 1917. Um, uh, so my argument today is that the foundations of the, of, of, of the above-mentioned characteristics are in 1917 when Ukrainian nationalists and socialists who took the political initiative immediately after the abdication of Nicholas II, uh, they made two important choices. The first choice was to opt for autonomy as opposed to independence, and the second choice is to create a centralized administration for Ukraine. The importance of autonomy is that the autonomy as opposed to independence required consent of the Russian government, but also, and which is most importantly, the consent of non-Ukrainian minorities in Ukraine. You should bear in mind that at the time in 1917 in Ukraine, there was a clear gap between u- ethnic Ukrainians who lived in the village, who were peasants, and non-Ukrainians, mainly Russians, Poles, and Jews, who lived in urban areas and who controlled practically all industrial or financial capital. So <clears throat> what happened is that as Ukrainians and non-Ukrainians uh, started started um, cooperating um, uh, with the provisional government, they were forced... Into cons- consensus-seeking politics. I will go into detail uh, in a minute. And my ultimate um, conclusion is that this atmosphere, although it did not last long, but it did affect the Bolsheviks of Ukraine, who later would be would be involved in in, in building up Soviet r- republic. Um, And it also affected the Sovnarkom, so the the Bolshevik leadership in Moscow after the October coup. And the impact of of this relationship, uh, it it proved to be lasting as both territorial centralization and consensus-seeking politics became characteristic of the Ukrainian Communist Party for 70 years, and they survived the fall of the Soviet Union until 1991, of course, and was fa- the, these elements were affected uh, by the post-1991 uh, events. However, they did survive at the, and they laid the foundations. An important thing, so now let's go more into details. I, I will stick only, well, mainly to 1917. What is important to understand is that at the, by 1917, uh, Ukrainian gubernias, which you see here in color, this is the border of modern Ukraine. And those are borders um, of um, what's in color is gubernias by 1914, 1917. What is important is that each gubernia was governed directly from Petrograd, Petersburg. So there was no centralized administration in Ukraine. So soon after the news about the abdication of Nicholas II reached Kiev, a group of Ukrainian nationalist-minded intellectuals and revolutionaries decided to create exactly that, a centralized organization for all Ukrainian governors that would protect cultural needs or cultural interests of Ukrainians, of ethnic Ukrainians. And ethnic Ukrainians at the time composed 80% of the population and of that 80 percent, 93 were peasants. However, <clears throat> so that was the the first head of the uh, of the so-called Central Council that was uh, created by Ukrainian revolutionaries and nationalists. Um, and, um, and next to it, you see the building where they were uh, meeting. However, the as the popularity of the Central Council expanded, it came to embrace the idea of seeking territorial autonomy as opposed to cultural at the forthcoming all-Russian General Assembly and turning the Central Council into Ukraine's legislative organ and creating Ukrainian government. Both cultural and territorial autonomy require consent of the provisional government, as I already mentioned, but it's worth Uh, underlining it again, yet contrary to cultural autonomy, territorial autonomy absolutely required consent of non-Ukrainian minorities who controlled, as I said, uh, economic and um, financial and industrial capital. So at the end of May 1917, and we are looking from from February 17 to May 1917, what happened in May 1917 is that the provisional government refused. The provisional government said to the Central the, the, the Central Council, sorry, in Ukrainian, sound, Central Rada, so you might you might end up hearing me um, hearing me saying it a lot. Um, the provisional government refused the legitimacy to this new organization. They said no. Um, Ukrainians quite boldly issued uh, the first manifesto that practically said what I wrote: "Let Ukraine be free." Without separating from Russia, without breaking ties with Russian state, let the Ukrainian people have the right to create its own life. At this point, we are still talking about very, very much an organization with a cultural agenda. However, having declared this, what is effectively autonomy, they have decided already to move into. Turned the central uh, council into a territorial organ, and they started seeking cooperation with non-Russians, All, but also with the uh, uh, governor. Or, well, at the time he was called commissar of the provisional government um, in, the, in Kiev, um, who was Cadet Mikhail Sukovkin. Why is it important? Is because the cadets are controlling the provisional government. Um, as you know, so here Ukrainians are seeking consensus with local cadets um, the thing is that the, the announcement of what was effective autonomy caused quite a stir as you know we are in, in it, it, the World War I is not finished yet, it is Eastern Front Ukraine is very much the border the, the Eastern Front well, for the West um, and um, so the, the provisional government was very much, well, worried about the war effort. But there was much confusion also among the peasants. They suddenly stopped delivering grain to, 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 to Petrograd, because they were saying that until we get the permission of the Central Narada, we are not going to supply the foodstuff. So in order to not exacerbate the situation, the provisional government sent a delegation. These two people, Mikhail Tirecivich, uh, was ethnic Ukrainian, but worked already with the provisional government, they come and they negotiate. And their point is very simple. Okay, fine. You want autonomy, you'll get autonomy. However, you have to co-opt non-Ukrainians into your new government. Well, Ukrainians were already working on that. But now they were... Well, they've, they've, well, they were now even forced to, so it's kind of worked both both ways in favor of both parties. But at the same time, non-Ukrainians, they were now, it was not now in their interest to cooperate with the Central Council, because the Central Council now becomes a legitimate representative of the provisional government in Ukraine. And so what happens? <coughs> Now both non-Ukrainians in Ukraine and Ukrainians are working together on a very simple agenda, well, straightforward agenda, maybe not simple, which is autonomy for Ukraine. According to the head of the Central Council, Mikhail, Mikhail Grushevsky, um, non-Ukrainians, minorities, they actively and wholeheartedly join the work of the Central Narada. I will stop only one, um, uh, one episode that shows most clearly how the, how the dynamic of the Central Rada. And that episode happened at the beginning of August, from, um, from 7th until 9th of August, when the Central Council had to discuss the instruction that was issued by the provisional government. And that instruction somewhat limited the powers of, of the Central um, Council as had been previously agreed so all the parties in the Central Council now agreed that indeed this instruction, new instruction from uh, Peterbun, Petrograd sorry, limited the power of the Central Council. What they did disagree about is whether the Central Council should accept that instruction, or whether it should reject it. And uh, here it how it goes. So Bund, is from Bund, Bund uh, 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 Jewish socialist party, but they were quite pro-Russian, he was saying, at present we won't get anything more from the provisional government. Nichenko, who was the head of the new Ukrainian government and Ukrainian social democrat, says effectively the same. If we are rejected, why democratic masses will not understand us? Lubinsky from the Ukrainian National Revolutionary Party, so very nationalist party, says, at places instruction insults us nationally, we should decisively reject it. Shrach, who was, um, he represented the most, uh, the party with the, with the highest support of the population. Uh, he was, this is Ukrainian uh, socialist revolution. He says we should reject the instruction. And Kadets Kaczynski, he says, that essentially the instruction aims to preserve the Russian state, so we should be satisfied it is as much as the provisional government could give, so we should accept it. And Goldelman from he said, if we don't accept the instruction, we will not have this territorial organ. What we see here is that Ukrainian social democrats are working with Russian social or, or Jewish social democrats. We do not see here clear national cut Um, so this debate effectively shows that while in summer 1917 Russia reverted back to dictatorship under Kerensky Ukraine was consolidating the institutional foundations of uh, parliamentarism now this did affect the Bolsheviks of Ukraine how? (coughs) On March 6, Lenin sent his famous telegram to Bolsheviks who were leaving to Russia, where he gave a very strict instruction to not cooperate. At their meeting on on 19th March, the Kiev Bolsheviks, they decided to withhold this telegram from the rank and file and to seek cooperation or to seek negotiations with Ukrainian social democrats in order to discuss the separatist aspirations of the Ukrainian Central Council. What happened is that the Ukrainian Social Democrats, they refused to drop the autonomous agenda. Of course, we, we also see here slight misinterpretation. Bolsheviks, ultimately, they exaggerated um, the, the autonomous agenda, elevating it to, to separatism. So Ukrainians, Democrats, they refused to drop the autonomous agenda and the Bolsheviks, they withdrew um, Well, they withdrew from cooperating with them. Now they, it was only they had to rely only on, on Lenin's uh, leadership on the RSDRP um, to, to bring them to power in Ukraine. And um, Petakov one of the leaders of the key Bolsheviks he made this effort he um, he spoke at the 7th um, at the 7th Russian conference of RSDRP, saying that suggesting that and here he was in agreement with Georgian and Polish Bolsheviks and he suggested as follows he said we should drop the rhetoric of self-determination which was the Bolshevik rhetoric as you know after the February revolution instead we should adopt adopt a rhetoric of turning Russian um, uh, Russian state into Russian federation Lenin and Stalin refused and this this disagreement caused quite it it basically caused the Kiev Bolsheviks to splinter we see two factions the Kiev Bolsheviks split between two factions Evgenia Bosch she remained loyal to the party line. She did not seek cooperation with any non ukrainian In fact, even with the Bolsheviks who worked with Mensheviks, she did not cooperate with them. She cooperated only with Bolshevik organizations in Ukraine. And Georgi Petakov already mentioned, he reversed back to his previous tactic of seeking, understanding, and cooperation with the Ukrainian, uh, with the ukrainian parties. <coughs> the Kiev Bolsheviks even joined the Central Narada and they cooperated with the Central Narada up until the Bolshevik coup what happened after the Bolshevik coup is that um, the, um, <coughs> the, the, the Bolsheviks the Ukrainian Bolsheviks tried to, to not split but to create an autonomous party from RSDRP. Lenin didn't like that, Uh, and effectively Lenin tried to stop uh, the the uh, to stop them creating a separate party. He was also very adamant to the idea of of centralized uh, Soviet centralized government on Ukraine. However, the Bolshevik leaders anyway created Soviet government in Ukraine in December, and Lenin in response. He sends his three agents. So argeny he would be taking care of the money and supplies. Antonov Vasyanka would be taking care of the troops, and Nikolai Skripnik he would be he would be watching over how the Bolsheviks f- f- how, how they cre- forge their relations with Ukrainian workers. Um, as you know, in, um, after the, as a result of the brest Litovsk Treaty, Ukraine effectively fell under, under, under Germans, and the Bolsheviks of Ukraine were again left to themselves. However, in spring 1918, uh, they decided to again seek cooperation with Ukrainian uh, social democrats. By that time, by May 1918, Lenin accepted two ideas. Uh, he accepted that there should be centralized, uh, a centralized or territorial centralized administration in, in Ukraine, and he also agreed to a coalition with other parties. That coalition will continue through the 20s and the 30s. Stalin would be quiet. Uh, so these central um, these are pictures of the um, Supreme Soviet during the Soviet times and the and the. Uh, uh, and after 1991, uh, consensus seeking, but also fractured political grouping, they will persist through the Soviet times. And we come to the time of the Gorbachev Perestroika. Uh, in Russia, we see Yeltsin, who comes up, is a strong leader. He puts up a fight. His struggle, political struggle, was first Gorbachev, then the In August. However, Krachuk, who you see uh, to your right here, at the time the chairman of the Supreme Soviet of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republics, and later becomes president very much as a designated head um, of the state.
3: Okay. Well, thank you, and thank you very much to my co-panelists for thought-provoking um, talks. Um, I'm going to shift the focus um, of uh, our panel now over to Latin America, um, and, and fast-forward, kind of concentrating on the on the 20th century. Um, <coughs> and this slide here. Um, depicts just a few fragmentary snapshots of the kind of century that Latin America had, the kind of revolutionary uh, century that that the region encountered, epitomized, of course, by the Cuban Revolution of 1959, um, but also um, perhaps the the next um, second most um, uh, successful revolution, the, the Nicaraguan Revolution of 1979. Eric Hobsbawm, whose writings on revolution in Latin America have just been been published, later reflected after 1959, and I quote... There was not an intellectual of the left in Europe or in the United States who was not under the spell of Latin America, a continent apparently bubbling with the lava of social revolutions. So this is the kind of uh, a, a impression of Latin America from the 1960s. And it, was just not that, and it was not just the left that claimed to be revolutionary in Latin America around the, in the mid to late uh, 20th century. Um, there were lots of different types of revolution that broke out. So you had the Bolivian National Revolution in 19 19- uh, 52 the centrist Christian democratic um, government which proclaimed a revolution in liberty in the mid 1960s and even the Brazilian military dictatorship that came to power in a coup in 1964 that proclaimed that they were bringing about some kind of national revolution um, in in, in their own country. So for much of the 50s, 60s, and 70s in 20th century Latin America, if you were not a revolutionary of some kind or battling against revolution, um, there seemed to be something uh, wrong, something was wrong. But I would say to understand this revolutionary fervor, the height of revolution in Latin America in the mid-20th century, um, we need to look much further back. And there are many of us who have been arguing for some years now that to understand the Cold War, the height of revolution during the Cold War, um, we need to to look back at the earlier part of the 20th century to look at what Gil Joseph and Greg Grandin um, have called a century of revolution. And on the one hand, of course, we need to consider, as David uh, mentioned, the Mexican Revolution, um, the first major revolution in Latin America of the 20th century, um, which spanned the best part of a decade and resulted in Mexico's radical constitution of 1917. Um, but we also need, um, and here, of course, the mural by Siqueiros um, uh, that's uh, housed at Chapultepec Castle in Mexico City, um, from Porfiriato to the revolution. It's an incredible <laughs> mural mural spanning a whole kind of wall, but here depicting the Zapatista revolutionaries um, in, in Mexico. But we also need, of course, to um, recover, to examine... Um, the arguably much more pivotal impact of the Russian Revolution of 1917 and how its legacies um, shaped the region and in this the centenary year of the Russian Revolution in particular I'd like to suggest that we historians really of Latin America really need to go back to examine to probe and better understand this impact of the 1917 Revolution in Latin America's revolutionary 20th century which have very often been eclipsed by what happened later, by Cuba, by Nicaragua, and by the kind of revolutionary decades of the latter half of the 20th century. Um, so despite the significance that Mexican, the Mexican muralist Diego Rivera um, uh, gave to Lenin, Trotsky, and the Soviet Union, the May Day Parade, up, up, on, the, up on the slide here, in his very famous controversial mural, um, Man, Controller of the Universe, which was first... Um, Um, set up in the Rockefeller Center but uh, forced to be taken down and is now repainted in in, uh, Bellas Artes in Mexico City, surprisingly little attention has been paid (coughs) by historians to grasping the pivotal impact of 1917 um, in Latin America. So while recognising that far more needs to be done um, on this subject, what I'm going to try and do today is to distill some of the most significant political impacts and influences of 1917 in Latin America. And I'm focusing, as I say, on the kind of political. There's much more um, to say about other um, areas as well. And essentially what I'm going to argue is that the Russian Revolution was very important and very significant for Latin America. What one historian has called it a pervasive and long-lasting effect was the result of, of, the, of the Bolshevik Revolution, but that it was also complicated, um, problematic, contradictory, and contested um, in Latin America, particularly as the century progressed and you have um, different revolutions and li- revolutionary thinkers um, um, engaging with it. And in part, this complexity rested on one of the central kind of a central kind of paradox, which is that um, Latin America was never really a focus for the Bolsheviks and or for the Comintern um, uh, at all, um, despite the kind of influence it will have in, in, in Latin America. Um, insofar as Latin America figured at all in the common communist international um, in its early years, um, and even later on, it was, in, it was in a supporting role. It was meant to be um, supporting um, revolutions um, in other parts of the world, primarily in Western Europe, the Western um, uh, capitalist um, um, countries. So um, so, it, so you have this paradox of a of a kind of uh, an area of the world that's not conceived or important to the Bolsheviks or the Comintern, but where it, it, it kind of arguably has perhaps some of the most long-lasting and pivotal kind of impacts um, um, taking place. So, what did the impact and influence of 1917 um, consist of? Um, um, let me point to four um, factors um, um, just to get the conversation going, but I suspect there, there will be others or suggestions from, from you as, as well. Um, more so and more long-lasting than anything else, the Russian Revolution brought a new revolutionary ideology and theory uh, to Latin America. Now, Marxist ideas had circulated in Latin America um, prior to this, but they'd done so in relatively small um, groups. Um, Uh, Now it arrived uh, to a wider audience um, and it it arrived in the form of Marxism-Leninism rather than just Marxist um, thought. By 1919, Lenin's um, writings were circulating widely in Latin America and um, for those in the region looking for an alternative, particularly to the rapid capitalist export-led growth of the late 19th and 20, early 20th century, Marxism-Leninism provided a way of interpreting and understanding the world and, the own con- and, and their own conditions, um, Latin America's own conditions and problems. And Lenin's writings on imperialism in particular um, caught the attention of uh, Latin American uh, audiences or, or uh, working groups, left-wing intellectuals. As one local writer put it, it the 50 years after 1917, so at the 50th anniversary, he said, anti-imperialism became a funda- fundamental flag for all political forces that aim to bring about revolutionary transformation in Latin America. So the, 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 the Lenin's um, uh, ideas of imperialism, although borrowed from others, um, reached Latin America and had a resounding uh, significance. One Chilean publication at that 50th anniversary celebration of 1917 um, simply called Lenin the revolutionary genius of our century. Um, um, And this is a a kind of uh, (coughs) uh, far-left publication um, from Chile that I've I've got up on the screen. So Lenin's writings, um, combined with the success of the Bolshevik revolution, um, also provided an organisational blueprint Um, and a model uh, for would-be revolutionaries in Latin America, and underlined the idea of a centralised Leninist party, which became very important for the left. And this was an an appealing um, contrast to the anarchist and anarcho-syndicalist groups that had been very popular um, in Latin America prior to this, but which had suffered serious setbacks and repression, particularly in uh, the period 1917 to 1920. By 1922, communist parties... um, explicitly members of the communist international, so linked very explicitly to that Bolshevik revolution, had been established in Mexico, in Argentina, in Bolivia, in Brazil, in Chile, um, and in Uruguay. And by the end of the decade, by 1930, you also had communist parties in Colombia, Costa Rica, Cuba, Ecuador, El Salvador, Paraguay, Peru, and Venezuela. All, as I said, linked specifically um, to the Comintern um, and the communist international. Now, this membership of the Comintern brought with it worldwide legitimacy and recognition, which gave these small communist parties, and they were very small at this stage, um, uh, a significance far beyond what might have otherwise been the case. Um, Although there was no Latin American representation at the first Congress of the Comintern in 1919, which had all, after all, focused on kind of the coming revolution that was meant to be taking place in Germany, representatives of the Mexican Communist Party, even if none of them were Mexicans, were at the Second Congress of the Comintern, And this is when M.N. Roy comes in, uh, because as a representative of the Mexican Communist Party, strangely, having been one of its founders, uh, finding himself in Mexico in 1919, um, Roy debated with Lenin uh, on the kind of place that Latin America, or more, more broadly, the wider world, the, the colonial and semi-colonial areas of the world, um, should have in a coming world revolution, um, and set out the Comintern's stance, contradictory as it was, on the national and colonial question, under which Latin America was problematically, as we all know, independent at the time, um, subsumed. Um, but as Lenin reportedly told Roy at this uh, congress, he said, There were much more urgent revolutionary tasks which had to have priority than Latin America. It would be a long time before revolution could succeed in the new world. So still, Latin America is a far distant kind of priority um, for the Comintern um, and for for Lenin. Only at the 6th Congress of the Comintern in 1928 did Latin America assume more central importance and focus. In 1929, the Latin American Secretariat of the Comintern was established, and representatives of 14 Latin American Communist parties met at its first meeting in Buenos Aires. In 1932 and in 1935, you then have very important, albeit unsuccessful, insurrections, communist-led insurrections, um, breaking out in El Salvador um, and in Brazil. And then, after the 7th Congress of 1935, um, uh, the Communist parties turned to the Popular Front strategies, um, and to their participation in left-wing uh, coalition governments um, where in, in Chile, Ecuador, and Cuba, assuming positions in government um, in the early 40s. By 1947, it was thought that there were 500,000 Communist Party members throughout Latin America. And while Soviet-aligned Communist Parties were increasingly banned uh, in, the, in the wake of the Cold War and the coming of the Cold War in the late 1940s, Um, The Soviet Union remained a powerful source of legitimacy and a frame of reference for the Communist Party movement and for the left. You only have to look at the impact of the fall of the Soviet Union um, and uh, the dissolution of the the Soviet Union um, on uh, the left in Latin America at the end of 1991 to get a sense of how significant the Soviet Union and that founding kind of 1917 um, narrative uh, was. On the other side of the political divide, however, 1917 provided a focal point for those opposing revolution, if it, even if it was a very often confused um with national or regionally framed revolutionary um, movements um, who were depicted and often depicted as being Bolshevik or or, or Soviet. And of course, this was a characteristic feature of the Cold War, framing politics in the region. But before this, you have a very specific growth of a language of anti-communism in the interwar period, which I would argue was perhaps even more significant than the actual establishment of the communist parties um, themselves. So all in all... 1917 has a very uh, real impact and legacy, but as I said, it was problematic um, and it was contradictory, particularly for those who tried to emulate um, the Bolshevik Revolution and try to follow the Comintern line in the 20s and 30s and going forward. And here you have the emblem of the Chilean Communist Party, um, <coughs> one of the most steadfastly aligned parties to the Comintern and to the Soviet Union uh, in the 20th uh, century. So in the first two decades after 1917, the shifts and turns in the common turns um, instructions caused significant problems for communist parties in the region, not least because these shifts and turns had little or nothing to do with Latin America's specific context and circumstances being subsumed under confused resolutions on the colonial question troubled a number of Latin American revolutionaries as well who pointed out that Latin America had gained its own independence in the 19th century. Um, and there were fierce debates as to how to classify uh, Latin America's particular stage of development in Marxist terms. Was it feudal? Was it capitalist? Was it, uh, At what stage um, was Latin America at? Uh, the numbers of communist parties Uh, members of communist parties were also very uh, relatively um, small. And as I've said, it was not until the 6th Congress of the Comintern in uh, 1928 and then in 1929 with the establishment of the Latin American Secretariat that Latin America gained its kind of of direct attention But when it did, it fell under the Comintern's so-called Third Period. Very confusing, different shifts of the Comintern. But it fell under the Third uh, Period from 1929 to the early 30s, which called for insurrection and a class-versus-class strategy. And the results of this offensive uh, strategy um, on the early early communist movement in Latin America were devastating, not least due to the repression that these relatively small communist parties um, faced. Perhaps most devastatingly of all, um, was the insurrection in El Salvador in 1932. Uh, communist-led insurrection in, in El Salvador, which met with brutal repression that left 30,000 Salvadorians um, dead. Um, you also have one in, in Brazil, as I mentioned, 1935, which also does not um, succeed. From 1935 on, the Stalinist Comintern shifted course again, this time strictly returning to the idea of a two stage revolution being applicable and appropriate for Latin America. First, national bourgeois revolution, um, and then a socialist revolution. And from here, those communist parties that were aligned with the Soviet Union, with a few exceptions, generally practiced peaceful means of gaining influence and power focusing on working through trade unions um, and the electoral systems where possible, even even in times of illegality and repression, which was very often the case in in the the 20th century, with the Communist Party of Chile um, actually banned um, uh, from 1948 to 1958, a whole decade, and then again, of course, after 1973. So again, this trajectory is complicated in explaining Latin America's revolutionary century that I mentioned at the beginning of this um, lecture. Um, Not least because the majority of the revolutions that triumphed or had a significant impact um, on uh, the region did so irrespective of these guidelines for a two-stage revolution or in spite of the Soviet um, Union. And in this respect, I'm talking, I'm, we could mention and we could talk about um, what happened in Guatemala, the Guatemalan revolution between 1944 and 1954, a democratic reformist revolution um, in the 50s led by um, a man called Jacobo Arbenz, who's. Um, Picture is is depicted uh, uh, on this mural uh, there, um, and who was overthrown in 1954 by a CIA sponsored coup. Now, some of his most trusted advisors were members of uh, the Communist Party, the PGT. But, um, you know, believing very much that Guatemala should um, uh, engage in a kind of capitalist kind of first stage of revolutionary process rather than any kind of socialist revolution but when they reached out to the Soviet Union um, uh, for help for advice they received very little uh, support Um, and there's um, some telling anecdotes in Pierre Iglesias' seminal work um, on the revolution uh, which put this into perspective. So the Soviet attache in Mexico offers to buy bananas from Guatemala to help um, but doesn't realise that the amount of bananas he's asking for is much more than Guatemala produces Um, and when he asks for Guatemala to ship these bananas over to the Soviet Union he has no idea that Guatemala doesn't have the kind of ships needed to ship the bananas over when they send Russian, um, sorry, when they sent literature over to Guatemala it was in Russian, unbeknownst to the fact that nobody really in Guatemala spoke Russian at the time. So you have a sense of the Guatemalan revolution continuing in spite of rather than because of the Soviet Union. Um, Fidel Castro's guerrilla insurgency against uh, Batista later in the same decade was very much criticized by the Soviet-aligned Communist Party of Cuba as being putschist, as being adventurist. And although the Communist Party of Cuba, the PSP as it was known, joined Castro's revolutionary forces in 1958, bringing new cadres to the revolutionary process, it became became increasingly important after 1959 um, in in, in the revolutionary regime that, that succeeded Um, This was by no means um, predetermined, and neither had the Soviet Union had any direct role in helping to bring Fidel Castro and the Cuban Revolution um, to power. And then, of course, you have the Nicaraguan Revolution of 1979, which is a similar story to that of the Cuban Revolution, in which the Soviet Union was relatively surprised and distant from the revolutionary process that uh, ultimately led to the fall of the Somoza regime. By the time that the revolution succeeded, the FSLN, the the, the revolutionary party that led this revolution, uh, uh, um, and which had been a breakaway faction from the pro-aligned Soviet uh, Communist Party, by the time it succeeded, it it had brought together a wide array of different groups, um, including prominent representatives of progressive sectors of the Catholic uh, Church, which became a very powerful, dominating, deterministic characteristic of the Central American Revolutionary processes. Of course, the revolutionary regimes in Cuba and Nicaragua relied very heavily on Soviet um, assistance, um, militarily um, and economically. But I would argue, and others have argued, I mean, it's, it's clear that this came later and arguably in direct response to increased hostility that the revolutionary regimes faced from the United States. So, aside from the revolutions that came to power, the other thing to add in terms of this contradictory and complex relationship. Um, is that some of Latin America's most famous revolutionary thinkers, those who um, shaped the kind of revolutionary century that I I mentioned before, um, contested the Comintern or the Soviet Union's line and influence. And in this respect, I'm thinking of uh, José Carlos Mariátegui, the Peruvian intellectual who founded uh, Peru's Socialist Party, which would later become the uh, Peruvian Communist Party, um, who'd been deeply influenced by 1917, who visited Europe and Moscow and called himself a Marxist-Leninist, but refused to be subservient, his party or the idea, his ideas to become subservient to, to the Comintern and, and led to kind of dispute at the time of um, his death. And then, of course, there is Che Guevara and Fidel Castro, um, whose revolution no, not only triumphed without the Soviet Union's kind of direct involvement, Um, but whose ideas on armed guerrilla warfare and strategies for revolution and and ideas about constructing socialism in the 1960s diverged very significantly from those within the Soviet Union and particularly the Soviet Union's line for peaceful coexistence um, at the time which caused huge Cuban-Soviet tensions until at least the mid-1970s or uh, the early 70s, mid-70s when a realignment um, took place. Um, Cuba really um, epitomized um, and underpinned the rise of a revolutionary left in Latin America, a new um, left. Now, this did not mean that the 1959 and the Cuban example eclipsed 1917 in the Russian Revolution completely um, in Latin America's 20th century, because perhaps as problematic as the types of vehement hostility that these new revolutionaries faced um, and that's through counterinsurgency programs in the 1960s, the rise of military dictatorship with the acute divisions on the left in Latin America um, that, that, uh, that dominated kind of left-wing politics throughout the latter half of the 20th century became, be- between what was known as the, became known as the old left um, and the Soviet aligned communist parties um, um, and the new left which opted for armed revolutionary tactics. Um, And when it came to these new revolutionary tactics, they were very much inspired by Che Guevara and Fidel Castro's writings, um, which basically argued that you didn't have to proceed gradually in a two-phase revolution. You didn't have to wait for all the objective conditions for revolution to take place. But the the revolutionary the process, the guerrilla struggle, um, the insurgency could create these uh, conditions and that you could essentially leapfrog stages of revolutionary uh, uh, process. In all these debates, uh, Lenin, Marx, and the terms of uh, revolutionary theory set out in the decades um, after 1917 remained key reference points um, uh, uh, for uh, left-wing intellectuals, for uh, left-wing groups. Um, They remained... um, Attesting to the significance of the Bolshevik revolution's um, impact, but also to the way in which it was contested um, and in which it was um, fought over um, in uh, the region. So what I've tried to show, and I'm going to stop here, is that Lenin-Marx, the terms of revolutionary theory set out um, after uh, uh, 1917, were undeniably important. Uh, for Latin America's revolutionary 20th century, but they need to be examined in combination with other currents and and, and contexts within the region. Um, And I also say that I'm hoping that this centenary of 1917 will help us do that um, far more effectively and in more depth than has been done um, to this point.
0: All right. So, so slight pause. If if you can, if you need to leave now, then then do. Otherwise, hopefully you can stay uh, until six o'clock for the questions. And I'm sure there are going to be lots of questions while people are just thinking. Um, a couple of quick points. What what you've had from the contributions is a presentation of the Russian Revolution of 1917 as a, as a global event and its worldwide significance, both as part of a series of. Uh, revolutionary upheaval spreading across Europe and the world going back to the American Revolution of 1776 Uh, you've also seen how it set Russia and Ukraine on different political paths and that's remained important down to the present and also triggered a century of ideological civil war if you like in in Latin America Um, it also works the other way around if you look at the players in Russia in 1917 they themselves were very concerned with Russia's place in the world and you can't understand the way they behaved without taking that into account. This is true if you look at the First Revolution, Nicholas II's abdication. The key thing that made him abdicate was pressure from the army, arguing that if he remained, he would be an obstacle to Russia winning the First World War, that his regime was not only incompetent, it was also corrupt and traitorous. And he essentially accepted that argument. On the other hand, if we look to the Second Revolution, the October Revolution and Lenin's seizure of power, One of the key arguments that Lenin used to say that it was timely to act in October and that you could fast forward and leapfrog the historical process was that he argued that a revolution in Russia would immediately spread that it would become a global revolution and not one simply confined to Russian territory but it would spread to Germany and to the rest of the Western world that turned out of course to be wrong or at least over optimistic so whether you're looking at events within Russia you need to look at the global influence on those events in Russia in 1917 as well as looking at it the other way and the way we've had in the presentations today looking at the global and international impact so that's just a thought and now perhaps we can move on to some questions. I'll try and take the questions three at a time so that the panel members have time to think. And then I'll please say, please, please keep your questions very brief. We don't want a counter-speech. Yet, but keep the questions very brief and indicate who you want to direct the question to. Who would like to start off, please? Yes, here. Yes, can you wait till the mic reaches you? There's a roving mic. Uh, this is directed at uh, uh, Dr Harmer. Um, in your analysis of the influence of communism in South America, you didn't mention China. Is it that because South Americans thought in a more European way, excuse me, um, and therefore uh, the influence of China was uh, was negligible or even uh, non-existent, or was there a real influence? That's a question about China's influence on Latin America. Yeah. Any more questions? Yes, just here in the front row
4: um, was the massive you know that the spread of the whole revolutionary thing in Latin America because there was no concentration on it when you said that that they weren't concentrating on that as a as a you know as a sphere particularly did that just allow things to happen?
0: Okay, what? so is that a kind of paradox that revolutions happened in Latin America because it wasn't a targeted zone? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, can I take one more question? Hopefully not for, for Tanya because she's got <laughs> she's now quite busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, any okay. other questions okay. for either of the other speakers? Yes, here, gentleman in grey. Um, a, a question for D- David yeah. Um Very interesting presentation. I, I wondered. Um, first whether you were able to distinguish between successful uprisings and uh, or unsuccessful uprisings rather than successful revolutions and also in the terms of the definition of a revolution does it have to be progressive in some way would you um, classify ISIL for example as as a revolution as opposed to something else Okay, so the question there is about a definition: when, is it, when does a revolution become a revolution, stop being an un- uprising, and does it, does it have to be progressive? Does it matter what ideology, ideology it's thinking about? So, Tanya, do you want to go first?
3: Yeah, I think um, I think on China, um, there was an impact of the Chinese revolution in Latin America, which I didn't mention, um, not least because I only had 20 minutes to cover a whole century. But um, I think the impact of the Chinese revolution obviously happens later. Uh, well, t- firstly, many of the Comintern shifts that the Latin American Communist parties are, are subject to are the result of what's going on in China. So, actually, the shift from a class versus class strategy or a popular front is, is a result of the Comintern trying out its strategies in the Chinese context. So, indirectly, that's an influence on the Latin American revolutionary process. Um, the, Latin, the, the Chinese Revolution of 1949 obviously happens later, and the impact... Um, differs depending on dif- where you are in Latin America and which um, country uh, uh, there is. I mean, there's a, there are pro uh, Chinese uh, Communist Party factions that split off in Brazil, for example, um, and particularly in Bolivia, but not everywhere. So it doesn't have the same kind of overriding kind of uh, impact everywhere. What does begin to have an impact is the Sino-Soviet dispute in the late 50s and the 60s um, in, in these big and very, very significant kind of divisions and arguments on the left about strategy and about um, kind of means of revolution and particularly when you get mixed with the Cuban revolution later on in the 50s in in the 60s you have big debates about the the role of guerrilla warfare, the role of the peasantry um, and and in that case the Chinese uh, influence becomes very very important and it's a huge concern for the Soviet Union, huge concern because the Soviets uh, are desperate not to lose influence particularly over Cuba uh, to the Chinese and to to, to Chinese influence. Um, I could say more but I'll stop on that (laughs) question. Um, On on the question of, you know, did Latin American revolutionaries triumph because it was a neglected area? Well, I mean, perhaps I didn't. In the 20s and 30s, they don't don't necessarily triumph. Um, Actually, um, the insurrections that take place are are, are met with huge and fierce repression. And um, In the 20s and 30s, perhaps I didn't emphasize enough, but one of the key impacts of 1917 and the Soviet Revolution is the power that anti-communism has as a language um, but also as a focal point for conservative groups who are worried about uh, different types of crises in, in, in kind of what they see as the modernization of society, whether it being impact on family, on gender, uh, on, on, on worker, employer relations, um, very much often this is seen as a Soviet, a Bolshevik threat. And, and the, the response um, is a rise of repression. It's also a rise of the right during this period um, as well. So in the 20s and 30s, you really get kind of this wave of kind of revolutionary activity and revolutionary thought, but that's really cut short. I mean, it's only with the Popular Front tactics of, uh, uh, and particularly during the Second World War of the late 30s and 40s that the Communist parties can begin to regroup and try to regain some of their strength. Um, but, but and, and not until the, 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 the Cuban Revolution that really you have a re- new revolutionary wave that, that, that takes over. And that isn't allowed to happen without huge um, hostility and, and, and efforts to counter that, as we know from the US efforts to try and stop revolution at any cost in, in the region. So, thank you.
1: David. Yeah, thank you very much. That's an excellent question. Um, a difficult one, too. Um, definition of revolution, yes, and there are um, so many different definitions out there, and I usually... I often work with the, with the definition of Charles Tilley, the, the American sociologist who passed away a few years ago, uh, who described a revolution, or defined a revolution as a situation... Um, um, in which a substantial part of the population challenges the rulers' uh, claim to power over polity, which then leads to a split of the polity. Um, this is not an ideal, um, and and then in the second step, basically brings about f- um, abrupt, forced. Um, political change Um, and the second part of the definition is problematic because it doesn't allow us to look at unsuccessful revolutions Mm -hmm. um and um therefore historians in particular have suggested to to narrow down tilly's definition a bit, and I, i i would agree with that and and also consider unsuccessful revolutions but generally the idea of a of a of a split of the polity is is relevant it's another important distinction we have to make between um Civil wars and revolutions. Um, If all revolutions are civil wars, um, and civil wars are also revolution, um, I think that's a key um, theme. David Armitage um, is discussing this new book on 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 civil wars, which just came out. Um, The question of um, if all revolutions have to be um, progressive—that's another fascinating. Element of, of 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 the question of definition, um, I would say no, um, absolutely not. I mean, in the original sense of the word, I mean, it's the opposite of evolution, right? Evolution, revolution. I the in the in a very in a very original sense, revolution meant to be regressive, not progressive. Um, the concept of revolution, how we basically, which we use today, is a very modern concept um, and it has has a connotation of being progressive. Uh, but um, that's basically just in the context of, of, um, of, of, of modern history so historically uh, the concepts changed and I wouldn't necessarily um, use uh, definitions of progressive or regressive I would try to keep it um, as neutral as possible but that's, you know, um, language is implicitly, implicitly carries
0: values so um, it's often difficult to, to do that mm-hmm. Can I collect some more questions please? There's a gentleman here and then one there Yeah
2: have a question about Ukraine for uh, Natalia. Um, Ukraine is being torn in two directions, half interested in joining with Europe or aiming at the West, half or so still looking at its Russian roots and, and Russian culture. And I'm curious what you think, and it's, it's simply a matter of what you think, um, will be left of the revolution, when, it, when the dust settles and Ukraine becomes um, uh, solely uh, Ukrainian.
0: Okay, so that was about the split identity of Ukraine. Question here?
2: Yes, um, yes after,
3: when we look back at revolutions, there's often a real cult of personality, um, which is associated with the revolution. And I was wondering, when the revolutions are actually taking place, though, how important is the, are the personalities involved, or, is it, or are the revolutions really driven by the big ideas? Um, which are pushing forward the revolution.
0: Is that a question for everyone?
3: It's for whoever wants to take it on, yeah. It's <laughs> a good
0: question for it to end with, yes. Oh, Natalia, do you want to go first of all on Ukraine? Yes,
2: thank you. Uh, thank you very much for your question. It's probably the most important one that interests now those who follow the news and follow the events. I'm on the record, right? Mm-hmm. I'm being reported right <laughs> <laughs> to be very diplomatic, yes, so it, it, first of all, it will take time to settle. As there are two conflicts there is uh, yes there are too too many conflicts right now in ukraine if you if you are If you are talking specifically about the identity of Russian and Ukrainian, I think when the dust settles in terms of identity, Ukraine will remain the same as long as Russia is there. Uh, in terms of strong un- unified state it will it will effectively attract as a magnet uh, that part of Ukraine that is close to it for cultural economic whatever interests and we cannot exca- escape the fact that Western Ukraine is closer to the west and this is what f- w- and, I, and I, I do believe that yes this dual identity it will continue what I do sincerely hope is that this, this consensus seeking what I call that prevailed during even the Soviet times which of course I didn't have time to explain and explore and this fragmentation and, and this ways of see, finding a, a consensus that it will prevail that it will find more middle ground but I do not believe Ukraine, it might join the EU, I don't know, it might join the NATO, I don't know, but in terms of cultural identity, this duality, I think it will be always there as long as Russia is there as a a, a large state. Thank you, thank you.
0: so, t- Tanya, do you want to talk about the role? Of, I think you should talk about personalities. There's some larger-than-life ones <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, against, uh, and yeah. their importance is against ideas.
3: Yeah, I mean, I th- I th- it, it, it's a complex one because obviously, um, throughout the 20th century, and much of the left and the old left, that I think implicit in your question was 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 fighting against the idea of a cult of personality. Believed that uh, you know that the. the Revolutionary work should be done among the masses, through trade unions, uh, through mass organisation, um, even though the centralised kind of party would, was important. Um, but then you get the kind of the, the, the revolution, like the Cuban revolution, and you get the larger than life figures of the revolutionary leaders like Fidel, um, like Ernesto uh, Che Guevara, um, um, very much in the kind of figurehead of kind of the Caldeo, the Latin American Chaldeo, which had, had kind of dominated kind of Latin American politics for for, for two centuries, um, and it becomes very hard to to separate um, the two. Now, actually, I think we're learning far more that the narrative that the Fidel um, offered of the Cuban Revolution, which put you know, him and his group very, very front and centre is a very reductive idea of why that revolution took place. That actually the revolution in Cuba was the result um, not just of the t- supposedly 12 guerrillas who went up in the Sierra Maestra and kind of caused the overthrow of the whole regime, but it actually included, you know, large-scale work in the cities, underground networks, Um, student groups, that the Communist Party did provide kind of logistic support women's groups, that there were far more many more people involved in that revolution that it can't be reduced to the the, the one person but what became very popular as a result of that narrative that the Cubans put forward was that a few people and particularly if you had charismatic people and they actually I I should say men because they generally were depicted as men at that time um, could kind of leaderful um, and successful revolution and I think that was very it was very potent both to people who wanted to believe in the revolutionary potential of Latin America that a small group and a charismatic leader could overthrow a whole state but also very potent in terms of enemies of of, uh, revolution who tended to over exaggerate and overestimate the revolutionary strength of some of the kind of new left groups that emerged in the 60s and 70s so um, I think that's a roundabout way of answering your question. Obviously, personality played a huge role, um, but I think it's reductive to read history that way, and I think we will be learning a lot more, if and when the Cuban archives <laughs> open, um, about, um, about you know, the other groups that were in, involved in, in, in that process.
1: Maybe there's something like a decline in the role of, of personality Um, in in the long trajectory of revolutions. Um, If you look at the Arab Spring, there were very few Ches and Fidels, right? Mm. Uh, Which is also, I think, to some extent, (laughs) due to the fact that many of these movements were directed against self-proclaimed revolutionary regimes. Um, so... In Libya, for example, that person, they, they, you know, people were very cautious about uh, the cult of personality of, of of a leader who proclaimed to be a revolutionary um, hero. And so, um, I, I, to some extent, um, maybe the 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 age of the charismatic revolutionary leader is, is 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 coming to an end. But I mean, we never know. But in, I mean, it seems to be um, that. Um, um, Revolutionary movements are more more cautious and careful not to to elect somebody um, who become another dictator, basically.
0: Yeah. Well,
2: very quickly because I see there are a few more questions. Well, what I will um, just say that curiously, what happened in Ukraine? The idea existed, the idea of autonomy, idea of socialism. Well, they were brewing there. The and. Um, because of censorship and, and the restrictions, in, in particularly in Ukraine due to World War I, there was no leader of nationalist movement as such. Well, Khrushchevsky, he, he was a known figure What I'm trying to say is that when, when this revolution happened, when, when the Tsar abdicated, and the Central Rada, the Central Council, came into being. Grushevsky was elected the leader. He w- he wasn't there. Um, he was basically designated, assigned the leader. So the idea very much drove the revolu- Ukrainian revolution.
0: Okay. C- all right. I can see there's more hands, five, five hands going up. I don't think very quickly. Then and keep your points extremely quick. Yeah. And the answers will have to be extremely quick too. I think we're into sound time. Um, if, yeah, OK, we'll take them back. We'll start here.
2: Just okay. yeah. this, this a very quick
0: aside on the discussion we have had on charismatic characters and a plug for one of the events coming up. At 12.30 on Friday, there's a talk on Red Ellen. Yes. Ellen um, Wilkinson, who helped found the Communist Party in this country. and it was a very charismatic character. Yes, absolutely. I hope everybody heard that. That's a talk coming up on Friday on Ellen Wilkinson by, on a, by a new, new, uh, new biographer of, of Red Ellen. Yes, next question.
4: We live in an extremely troubled world, and it's getting worse by a minute. And unfortunately, although I'm an eternal pe- uh, optimist, but it, uh, it it may get worse before it gets better. My my question is about a, um what many people, too many people, consider a nice idea, but. I view it as a global imperative, and that is the very nature and the role of scientific compassion contextualized in Russian revolution and any revolution for that matter. So when I say scientific, I mean non-dual, non-political, non-judgmental. Uh, compassion that indeed appears to be, at least to me, as, as the only hope of revolutionizing politics, revolutionizing individual plot, if you will, and also collective on a global level. Thank you.
0: Okay, so that's a question
4: about compassion.
2: Yes. The, the, lady in, yes and the lady in blue, please. Uh, is there a ground for the assertion
3: li- uh, in the international international media, like the New York Times, that there is a resemblance between the rhetoric of the populist movements in Europe at the moment and the uh, yeah, Bolshevik rhetoric uh, in the first years of the revolution in 1917? Because that assertion has been made. Okay,
0: okay. Yeah. Two more. Two more. Then there's a white. And going up here, and then a black going up there. Hi, yeah. So, my question is generally about whether, how do we determine whether revolution is actually going to succeed or going to fail? And regarding what Dr. Motterdale was arguing earlier about how he analyzed the different trends of revolution, different strains that came across across history, I was wondering whether there exists an academic field that actually takes some of this data and uses it to create. And a framework with framework which to better understand or predict whether a revolution is actually going to succeed or, if it hasn't yet, it, how feasible it is to create such a field to understand the feasibility of a revolution. Yeah, thank you. Last point. Very quick, please. Um, this
1: question could really go to any of the three panelists, uh, but um, I'll direct it at Natalia, because mm-hmm. if sort of uh, the Ukrainian perspective inspired it. Um, the not, you know, uh, what happened in Ukraine uh, following the Bolshevik Revolution uh, also coincided with pogroms against the Jewish community. Um, and I think, uh, Professor Harmer, you could probably also talk about this too, but that that revolutions have been used historically. There are tons of examples of how the oppression of of, of minority groups
0: happens within the shadow of a revolution. I, I mean, I don't know if you could speak to that, uh, i are going to have very little time to say anything but the, the, the points that have been raised yeah can you, about predictability of revolutions about parallels between the Bolsheviks and the populist movements in the West now yeah and the question about uh, tra- oppression of minority groups and a question about compassion is the real revolution that we need a revolution of compassion rather than violence I think I'm just going to have to ask each of you to give a couple of, of cl- concluding reflections which you can draw on the questions if you like yeah and the the important observations that have been made. Catania, do you want to go first?
3: Um, I'll go first. Um, On compassion and science, um, I think we need to to understand why the 1917 revolution had such an impact in Latin America. We have to understand the context. And very broadly speaking, I think compassion and science are quite interesting ways to think about it because one of it is the reaction to the new living conditions, the social question, poverty, inequality, strikes unemployment. That is current in Latin America in 1917, 18, 19. And um, the desire to actually change that situation um, and to look for alternatives is why you have the 1917 revolution taking on um, such a having, a, having the kind of uh, att- having the attention it does. Um, and in it, they find this idea of a scientific program for making things better, <laughs> um, a scientific alternative. Um, obviously, we can debate whether it was objective or subjective, the very kind of Marxist terms <laughs> and the way in which people were talking about it. But I think, I think those terms are actually quite useful in thinking about why the 7, 1917 revolution has the impact it does. Um, on, on the question about um, oppression of minority groups in revolutionary um, states, the only thing, I mean, very briefly that I'd say is part of why you find this is the need of revolutionary groups, once they've assumed power, to, to actually... Um, uh, control the state, control the nation um, and their desire to really be able to um, um, bring in all different uh, groups into that state or exclude them if they don't want to be part of it and I think there's that that kind of need to kind of assume control once the revolution has triumphed that creates that very problematic and, and very uh, devastating kind of dynamic with groups within the re- within the state that don't necessarily want to be part of that revolutionary process
0: David do you want to take one on to that yeah. yeah okay
3: um, yeah very brief um, um,
1: okay which questions have been answered the uh, populist movement um, uh, yes um, I think many of the characteristics um, I've described that connected revolutionary movements like direct links, uh, meta forces um, are also um, uh, there when we look at populist movements today. Um, I I don't think the populist movement of today is a revolutionary movement as such because most of them at the moment are still trying to achieve change within the institutions of the state and don't necessarily call for an overthrow of the state and uh, democratic institutions have so far been very flexible in accommodating these groups, so I think it's more a social movement um, rather than a revolutionary social movement, but obviously there's an overlap, and in um, many stories, I mentioned Charles Tilley, um, who worked on revolutions, have also worked on social movements and social mobilization and collective action, which are basically, um, um, which is connected um, connected research fields, um, feasibility, um, yeah, that's a great question, <laughs> um, well, I'm not a practitioner of 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 revolutions, um, but I could. I mean, I th- yet. Um, <laughs> but um, I think. Well, I don't know. It's very difficult to say. I mean, I think if you really look um, closely at revolutions that succeeded, and they're very few. Um, um, you'll, you'll see some characteristics, some common features, and I can't really go through them all now, but I think the only one which we haven't mentioned properly yet is um, internal elites. I think in all of these cases of, 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 of um, successful revolutions, you have parts of the uh, ruling elites of the previous regime um, at one point changing sides, and I think that's you know, often a, an important element. If um, If the ruling class of the old regime is collectively opposed to a revolutionary movement, it's very, very difficult to
0: push it. True. That's what uh, leads into u- Ukraine, I think. Yeah.
4: Uh, well,
2: I- about the oppression of minorities, it's a very good question. It is um, I- indeed Jews were complaining a lot about the pogroms. It's true. To the Central Council, the problem is that the uh, new authorities, the revolutionary authorities, let's let's call them this way, um, they have constraints. They have their agenda to follow. Uh, they do not necessarily possess uh, the um, uh, authority over uh, law enforcement and um, they need popular support so it is a very tricky thing they did try to work together as they did it's quite interesting um, documents on that and um, regarding the uh, rhetoric of populists Yes, on one thing I would say what is absolutely uh, common is disregard of experts. Uh, both, well, disregard of the opinion of experts. Uh, so we, we see very much what happened in Ukraine curiously. For a very long time, the, cent- the Central Council was resilient, absolutely resisting to adopt a slogan, Land to Peasants. It does not become the official agenda until until the Bolsheviks took power. So they did resist it, but effectively, yes, they were they were forced into. Um, so, in 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 these terms, yes, I would make a parallel in terms of populism, yes. Thank you.
0: Which is a good note on which to end, yeah? The disregard of experts, but I hope the purpose of a (laughs) festival like this is is to bring expert opinion within range of, of everyone who's come today. So thank you very much for coming.